This is episode number 45 with Dr. Sarah Buckley. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl, and I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe to uncover the habits, mindsets, tools, and rituals that they have used to become world-class so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Before I introduce today's guest, I want to tell you about two very exciting things. The first thing is that you can now pre-order my next book, Open Wide, The Radically Real Guide to Deep Love, Rocking Relationships and Soulful Sex. All you have to do is head to melissarambrosini.com forward slash open wide. And on that page, you will find all the details on where to order, plus how you can get your hands on some epic bonuses when you order before December 18. The second super exciting announcement is that my husband and I are joining forces. We are collaborating to bring you the Open Wide Tour around Australia in January and February 2018. This is a celebration of Nick's music. Now, some of you might know him as the artist Broadhurst, and he will be performing his beautiful tunes with his live band and a celebration of the release of my next book, Open Wide. So imagine like TED Talks meets Coldplay, and it's going to be a fusion of music, meditation, and motivation. And you can get your tickets for that today at nickandmelissa.com. Now, on to today's special guest, Dr. Sarah Buckley. She is a family physician trained in GP obstetrics. She has been writing and lecturing to childbirth professionals and parents since 1997 and is the author of the internationally best-selling book, Gentle Birth, Gentle Mothering. Sarah is also the mother of four children, all naturally born and naturally raised, now in their teen years and beyond. Sarah's work supports parents and professionals to be well-informed and to listen to their hearts and instincts. She acknowledges parents as the real experts in their bodies, babies, and families. Sarah has such a special interest in the hormonal physiology of labor and birth, and in 2015, she completed an extensive scientific report on this topic which we will link to in the show notes. So if you're interested in reading that, head over to the show notes and you can have a read. Now, this episode is so juicy and we go deep. We talk about Sarah's journey and how she got to become a natural and gentle birth advocate, how you can experience the natural ecstatic high with childbirth, why giving birth is hardwired in us women, how we can rectify some of the hormonal gaps when we have interventions or C-sections, why skin-on-skin contact is vital, what a breast crawl is, how important it is to trust your body, especially during pregnancy, birth, and postpartum, how and why two birds are never the same, why it's important to be the most prepared you can be and how hiring a midwife can be one of the most supportive things that you can do, what a lotus birth is, plus so much more. 
And for everything that we mention in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes and that is over at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 45. And without further ado, let's bring on this Aussie goddess, Dr. Sarah Buckley. Welcome, Sarah. I'm so excited to have you on the show. But before we dive in, can you please tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? Oh, yes. Well, I had my special chocolate muesli, homemade muesli with um, activated seeds and nuts. And I have cacao powder and and um, maca powder and chia seeds and coconut oil <laughs> and uh, blueberries. It's an antioxidant um, um, good hit. <laughs> Oh, yum. Sounds delicious. And so we're both in Queensland at the moment, and I was so excited to find out that you are a local where I grew up, which is very exciting. Isn't that amazing, Melissa, because we got in touch through Daniel Vitalis in the US, so I sort of came back home again. So tell us about your journey and how you got to being such a pro-natural birth GP. I guess it starts way back with my own family. So I've got quite a history of that in my family. My grandfather was um, a GP in this small country town in New Zealand. He attended women giving birth in the bush on horseback sometimes. There's a famous story about him going out and not coming back for two days. <laughs> um, my father was actually um, trained as an obstetrician and he worked in the same small town, Whangarei, in New Zealand. Um, so I kind of grew up with birth, you could say. And then I was kind of interested even before I had my own babies. I guess I always Always thought outside the box, but um, I supported. Well, apart from doing my own training in GP obstetrics back in New Zealand, um, also had the pleasure of supporting a few friends having their babies at home. And I looked, oh, hospital birth looks like this, home birth looks like this. You know, home births looking pretty good. And I was also influenced by my husband Nicholas. His sister's a home birth midwife in New Zealand. She's been attending births for thirty plus years. Um, so it was kind of in the background really. So when we um, had our first baby in 1990, it was kind of the the default position really. Halfway through we thought, oh, you know, maybe we should think about going to hospital. <laughs> but we decided not to. And uh, so for, um, our four children were all born at home. And, you know, we had such great experiences really, you know, um, quite different to what I saw in hospital or I think what would have happened for us in hospital. And, you know, that experience of having natural, normal, you know, the term I use now is physiological birth, you know, um, letting the natural processes of the body unfold is, uh, it's kind of hard to describe because it can be such a euphoric experience. And what I've learned subsequently is the reason it's like that is because it powerfully stimulates your pleasure and reward centers. Like it's meant to feel good. You're meant to get this big high at the end of, of birth. And that's what kind of helps you to bond with your babies. That's what I say, mother nature patting you on the back saying, you've done a good job, do more. So really out of that experience, I thought, well, you know, what is what is this experience I've had? Like, how do I explain that in a in a medical sense? Because obviously it wasn't anything I learned at medical school. And you could say that my work has been all about that. Like how, you know, how do we encapsulate that? How can we promote it? How can we support it? And, you know, it all comes down to the hormones of labor and birth, because that's what's um that's what's making these experiences happen. That's what's causing the processes of labor and birth. And at the same time, um, um, stimulating the reward and pleasure centers. You know, it, it's making birth as safe as possible, as easy as possible, and as rewarding as possible. That sounds really, really good. And I haven't given birth yet, but 
you talk a lot about the birthing process being an orgasmic experience. And if you told some women that um, childbirth could be an orgasmic experience because of all of the hormones that are released, they may not believe you. Actually, last night I was talking to my mother-in-law and I told, she said, who are you interviewing tomorrow? And I was telling her all about you. And she goes, ha, that doesn't happen. (laughs) (laughs) But can you tell us about what could potentially or how we could potentially make this a reality for ourselves? Because I know I personally would love to experience that ecstatic high that you talk about uh, after birth. So how can we make this a reality for ourselves? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, first of all, I want to um, suggest that people that want to know all the kind of scientific detail, because what I'm saying is based on science and biological understandings of how the body works, um, go to my website, sarahbuckley.com, and look for my, there's a free ebook there um, if you subscribe to my email list. It's called Ecstatic Birth, Nature's Hormonal Blueprint for Labor. So that's basically what it is. It's our hormonal blueprint. It's what we what's designed to happen, not just for women, but actually for all mammals mammalian females and as I said the design is to maximally or part of the design is to make birth as easy as possible so the body's totally lined up and ready it's at this peak of ripeness and there's a whole lot of pre-labor preparations that happen um, before that Um, it makes it as as safe as possible there's many many inbuilt safety factors for the mother and the baby and again those safety factors are, are maximal you could say they mature at the time of physiologic spontaneous normal but labor onset. In other words, you might not get these systems lined up if you're induced or if you have a cesarean. And they also make birth as rewarding as possible. So that stimulation of the reward and pleasure centers by the hormones of labor and birth is what stimulates or or reinforces or has maternal um, behavior happen in all mammals because, you know, dogs, cats, elephants, they don't go to prenatal classes to learn how to take care of their babies, right? It just naturally kicks in following labor and birth, following these um, ecstatic hormones, as I call them, that are stimulating the reward and pleasure centers. And I say, it's a bit like the first date ever. You're in this absolutely peak state to fall in love with your baby. And it's not just a good feeling. It's actually what has the species survive because if you fall in love with your baby, then you'll be rewarded and motivated to give the dedicated care that basically every mammalian mother needs to give to her newborn. So it's actually, it's ecstatic birth, but it's also about species survival. It's about optimizing the chance that that that, that the species, the individuals and the species will survive. So it is mother nature's hormonal blueprint. So in terms of doing anything about it, it's really um, more like not doing, you know, what, what, what do we need to avoid doing? for this to unfold because it's a pattern that just physiologically, biologically, naturally, physiologically unfolds. So really it's about not disturbing labor and birth. So sometimes when I talk about this material, I call it undisturbed birth. And, you know, the hormones that we're talking about and the, the, the sequence of them, the pattern of release in having a baby is almost identical to the pattern of release in making a baby, right? So we need the same conditions, you know, like imagine trying to make a baby like in a public place or in a room where there's strangers walking in in and out through an unlocked door, like it would be very difficult, right? And you certainly wouldn't have the peaks of pleasure (laughs) that you might have in a private space. And, you know, our hormones of labor and birth are the same. They're kind of shy hormones and they're designed to operate when we feel safe. 
And if you think that birth has evolved for all mammals in the context of the wild, of course, you realize, of course, the female has to feel safe. You know, if she, she isn't safe, then obviously it's not a safe place to have a baby. So there's a um, very alert senses in labor. If anyone listening's had a baby themselves, you know you're in this kind of hypervigilant state to some extent, but that's kind of counteracted by the, the laid back hormones, by the hormones of pleasure, um, the hormones of calm and connection that you also have have high levels of. So, it's a very interesting, you could say unique um, state to be in. You're kind of on this, in this altered state of consciousness. Um, some people calling it going to labor land. Um, apparently, one of the Native American tribes says that the laboring mother goes out to the stars to collect the soul of her baby and bring it back. So that's kind of what's happening. And um, yeah, the maximum reward and pleasure, you know, that, that kicks in particularly in, in, in that hour after birth, that magical hour after birth. So it's really about not being disturbed. It's about feeling private, safe, and as unobserved as possible. That doesn't mean we have to give birth in a cave, but there's ways of setting up a situation so that you, you do feel private and safe, you know, having someone with you that you know your own midwife is ideal, a doula, a supportive birth companion if you're going to hospital and you don't don't have your own midwife continuity of care, that's critical. You know, the studies show that if you have your own midwife who looks after you through the labor, through the pregnancy, labor, birth, and afterwards, you know, your chance of needing interventions is lower, your satisfaction's higher, and in fact, you even have less chance of losing your baby early on. I mean, many, many advantages, lots of really good research happening there. It seems to modify the effects of stress in pregnancy that has just come out from actually a Queensland study that showed that the women under stress, and this was actually the 2011 floods had less of an impact on themselves and their babies if they had that continuity of care. So lots of things to think about kind of when you're setting up your your care for pregnancy and your care for birth, you know, you want to be looking ahead and thinking, how can I set up a situation that I'm going to end up in labor with feeling private, safe and unobserved with people that I know, people that support me. And of course, it's a bit of a no-brainer that home is an ideal place to feel private, safe and unobserved. And I had my babies at home and I think it's a great choice, but it's not the choice for everyone. It's basically, you have to feel safe where you are. Mm, it makes so much sense. You are you know, about to embark on such a miracle because childbirth, I believe, is such a miraculous experience. And it makes so much sense that you feel safe, you feel comfortable, and you can fully open and relax and tap back into the innate wisdom that is deep within all of us. Um, so it just makes so much sense, you know. Why would we mess with nature? Exactly, exactly. And what you say is exactly true. It's hardwired into all of us. You know, if we can make a baby, we can have a baby. Or <laughs> actually, we can have a baby even if we've been through IVF. You know, women have difficult conception sometimes and beautiful births at home, you know, like it's, it's the hardwiring of our body, as you say. And, you know, in relation to setting it up, you know, that the, the problem is that when we start to bring in, you know, the private, safe and unobserved, that's kind of the core requirements for birth and all mammals, as I call it. But, you know, when we start to bring in other interventions, we can really interfere with these hormonal processes. I mentioned induction because, you know, the, the I say induction of labor is a bit like the royal wedding, William and Kate turning up to Westminster Cathedral a week beforehand and expecting everything to be the same because it's not. There's hours and days and weeks and months of preparation that lead to that pivot 
pivotal moment, which is the physiologic onset of labor. There's communications between mother and baby, you know, this chemical signals passing back and forwards, because obviously it's critical, again, for species survival, that mother and baby are both in this peak of readiness. So, you know, an induction of labor is a really significant intervention in relation to these hormones, because, you know, if you haven't gone into labor naturally, then by definition, you're not biologically fully ready. And in animal studies, some of the, you know, the, this readiness happens even in the hours preceding labor and birth. So, you know, induction is a major intervention. And then, of course, cesarean is going to impact these hormones um, to a large extent, particularly if it's a pre-labor cesarean. There's none, then there's not the full preparations, there's not these in labor processes where the hormone levels are going up. There's not the embedded safety, ease and pleasure that we're talking about. You know, so mother and baby end up, you know, in, in a quite different hormonal state than than um, a mother and baby who've been through normal labor and birth. And that's, I call it a hormonal gap. There's a hormonal gap there. And I'm not saying that's, that's 100% a bad thing because sometimes we know that these interventions can be really useful, can even save the lives of mothers and babies. So it's not about not doing the intervention Interventions, it's really about recognizing the hormonal gaps and then how can we fill that hormonal gap. And how can we rectify those hormonal gaps when we have interventional C-sections? Yes, well, that's a good question. So, just um, going back to what I said before about the, you know the days and weeks of preparation and that full readiness, or as um, a writer in the area, Michelle O'Donnell says, you know, when the fruit's ready, it'll drop off the tree. So, that full readiness, you know, it makes what it does is it actually makes the whole system of labour and birth absolutely as efficient and effective as possible. So, just talking about, for example, we talked about the reward and pleasure centres, you know, that are designed to attach mothers and babies. And again, I'm talking about all mammals here, not just women. So what happens is in other mammals, we can measure that the receptors for these hormones, just oxytocin, for example, in the brain, reaches peak levels at the physiologic onset of labor. So her brain is ready and waiting and maximally sensitive to these hormones that are going to come in in labor, the peaks of oxytocin that are released actually within the brain as well as from the brain into the body and make the uterus contract, as you probably know, but that the release within the brain is then going to bind to these receptors that are that are all there ready and waiting and maximally activate these pleasure and reward centers in a very effective way. So, you know, physiologic onset of labor, as I call it, or spontaneous or natural onset, you know, you could have a half an hour of labor and everything's fully ready. But the trouble is if you miss that peak readiness by pre-labor cesarean, by an induction, there's quite a big hormonal gap. You don't have the readiness and or you don't have the labor and birth experience. So what's going to happen is instead of everything unfolding with maximal efficiency in say half an hour, um, you know, or however, however long it takes, it's actually going to take much longer. It's going to be a much less effective process. So filling in, in those hormonal gaps is much more difficult outside that window of opportunity, you could say. So we can fill in this, those hormonal gaps. And if we look at what releases those hormones, and again, I'll use oxytocin. It's a a hormone released by skin to skin, eye to eye contact, um, by social contact. Um, So all of those things that, you know, when we hold our babies and we, by breastfeeding, when we breastfeed our babies, those things release oxytocin and that will be released in our brain and we will get activation of those pleasure and reward centers, but not such a big hit in such a, you know, biologically effective way as previously. So you can fill in the hormonal gaps, but it needs more work and you could say more patience, yeah? So I'll share an anecdote about that, um, which is really um, beautiful. It was a mother who had um, two natural births and then her third baby, she had to have a cesarean. 
And um, she said, when, when I got my baby, my baby felt different. My baby felt different to my other babies, yeah, which is completely makes sense because she's in a different, different hormonal state. Her baby's in a different hormonal state. And she said, my instinct was to keep my baby with me skin to skin, you know. Um, and she said, after three days of skin to skin, my baby was the same as my other babies. So, you know, that, that small window wow. of labor and birth, you know, if that's maximally effective. If we, if we want to catch up with those hormones and fill in those hormonal gaps, it's going to take longer. So skin to skin and breastfeeding releases all of these hormones. It re- you know, it's a, it's a pleasurable experience. I was thinking about it the other day. We don't talk about that. It is actually a pleasurable experience. It binds us to our babies. It releases oxytocin, prolactin. It turns on our nurturing. It turns on our, you could say, vigilance around our babies. You know, it's really interesting. The, so breastfeeding and, and basically breastfeeding and skin to skin. And again, you know, just going back to that kind of evolutionary um, blueprint, you could say, you know, what happened in the wild. Well, there were millions of years of human evolution before we had blankets and bunny rugs and hats and everything. And skin to skin was how we kept our babies warm. It's it's brilliant. There's a whole regul- mutual regulation thing that happens if the ba- if the baby's cold, the mother transmits more heat. If the baby's warm, the mother transmits less heat. So, you know, we're really designed to have our baby skin to skin with us from birth ongoingly. And we're not really designed to put our babies down because, again, in the wild, if we put our babies down and turned around, the baby wouldn't be there when we turned back again, right? So, you know, early and ongoing skin to skin and liberal breastfeeding is basically the, the way to fill in those hormonal gaps. Mm. What do you think is a good goal for a lot of people? Do you think daily skin to skin or do you think as much as possible? Do you think if the father comes in and, and he does skin to skin as well, like that's good enough? Like what what is ideal? Is it for the first month? Is it for the first three months? What do you think? <laughs> well, we I can't say that from studies, but um, there's a there's a wonderful researcher called Nils Bergman, and his hashtag is hashtag no separation. So the biological blueprint is that we're not separated from our babies. Our babies are in, in touch with us, in contact with us, and of course you can get all sorts of baby carriers, especially the the more simple, like a Maytai, you know, it's the, the traditional Asian baby carriers, where you can carry your baby skin to skin on you. Your baby can stay skin to skin on you. Obviously, you need to go to the toilet sometimes, etc. But you know, that is our that is our blueprint, and I'm not saying everybody has to do that, but that's kind of what your body expects and kind of what your baby expects to some extent. And there actually was a randomised controlled trial in this area where they randomised women to extra skin to skin contact with their babies, or you know, two hours a day for the first month. I think it was a little bit more in the first week, and those mothers actually had lower scores on postpartum depression because all those hormones that we release in skin to skin are ecstatic hormones are hormones of pleasure and connection and relaxation and they drop our blood pressure and they reduce our cortisol like they're all feel-good hormones so basically the more the better um the the other thing you know just stepping outside the hormonal um, milieu for a minute is that the other thing that's how well, there's lots of things happening obviously when the baby moves from inside the womb to outside the womb but the other thing that's happening for the baby is a colonization of the baby's body you know the baby in the womb is virtually um, germ free you know we can't say totally but virtually germ free and then what happens as the baby's born the baby enters this you know bacteriological environment and the baby gets colonized and the idea is 
is obviously, ideal is obviously that the baby's colonized with the mother's healthy flora. So flora meaning kind of, you know, bacterial species or, you know, microbiological species. So as the baby comes out through the mother's vagina, you know, even through the processes of birth, after the membranes are broken, the baby is exposed to all those vaginal flora. The baby licks and swallows and, you know, is coated with all these um, healthy bugs that will form the baby's first bacteriological environment. And it's a bit like planting a garden, you know, the first things that you see there are the things that are really going to take root. So we want the baby to have a good bacteriological um, transition, you could say, or, or, or we want the baby to be colonized with those ideal bacteriological species. So that's, you know, and the baby swallows, they, they go and colonize the baby's gut. But there's also our skin, our skin, you probably know all these things, but our skin is highly colonized with friendly bacteria. So the baby's skin gets colonized through skin-to-skin contact. And the ideal, again, for the baby is to be colonized by the mother's bacteria through skin-to-skin contact with the mother. But the second best is obviously anyone else in the baby local environment like the father so skin to skin contact with the father is good from a bacteriological point of view it's good because it also you know um, helps keeps the baby soothed and generates you know some of these hormones for the baby it switches on the father's caretaking to some extent it's a little bit different between mothers and fathers but definitely you know particularly if the mother's in a situation where she can't give skin to skin with the baby like following a cesarean you know the baby gets taken away skin to skin with the father is is really really good highly recommended. So I can't give you a formula, but the thing is try it and see because you will find it's pleasurable. You know, the more babies I had, the more pleasurable it was. And, you know, if you live in a warm climate where you can, you know, where your baby doesn't have to wear clothes, you know, I, I really enjoy just like lightly swaddling my baby and, you know, the, the Inuit, the, the, the people living in the extremes of, of climate, you know, they kept their babies in, in fur skins, but still, you know, you, you can still do it skin to skin. Mm, this just is so amazing and just blowing my mind that, you know, these are the things that not many people actually think about. Um, I'd love for you to talk about the baby crawl now and tell us what that is and tell us the hormones that are released through that process and, and when the baby reaches the breast. Yeah, so just to go back a step, so the breast crawl that you're talking about. Oh, sorry. <laughs> was it medical what did school? I call it? Right. Baby crawl. The, the baby crawl. <laughs> so the breast crawl. That's all good. So the breast crawl is um, an, an inbuilt phenomenon that we've really just recognized in the last 10 to 15 years. And when I was at medical school, we, 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 we were taught that the baby has all these reflexes, these newborn reflexes. For example, if you stroke the bottom of the baby's foot, they'll step. It's the stepping reflex. If you stroke the baby's cheek, they'll turn their head. But we didn't really know what these reflexes were for. But then we discovered, <laughs> and we're a bit slow on the uptake here, humans, we discovered that human babies actually do what other mammalian babies do, which is find the breast themselves, find the nipple themselves, you know, and of course it makes sense when you look back at it. So all these reflexes are there so that the baby can find the breast without help, yeah. So what the baby does, the baby comes out and the baby has this, you could say, nipple sensing, <laughs> um, sense of smell, the nipple at that time smells like amniotic fluid and the baby can orient and find its way towards the nipple by smell. Um, for example, they did studies where they washed one nipple and not the other one and the babies always went to the unwashed one. Um, the babies can find the nipple because it looks a bit like a target. <laughs> it's like the original target. So the baby uses all its senses and then the baby has, as you say, this crawling ability, this stepping ability.
ability. And coincidentally, on the way past, as the baby goes up to find the nipple, the baby will actually step on the mother's belly. And that is like a uterine massage. It helps the uterus to contract, which obviously is important in those early times after birth. It, you know, as the uterus contracts, um, um, it uh, releases oxytocin, which helps the mother as well. And um, what that does is, you know, saves the mother from bleeding after the birth. So, you know, it's, it's in all of these things, it's kind of the interactions between the mother and the baby that are magical. You know, it's like um, the baby needs the mother and the mother needs the baby. And then what happens as the baby gets towards the breast, um, the first thing the baby does is actually massage the mother's nipple and kind of gets, you know, it's like that. You've probably noticed kittens do this. It releases, it releases oxytocin for the mother and actually prepares the mother's breast for feeding and in one study where they actually measured the mother's oxytocin release as the baby was doing this, her oxytocin levels went up 10 times. And what that means is that oxytocin is contracting her uterus to stop bleeding. It's turning on her reward and pleasure centers. It's getting her ready to breastfeed. And it's also doing this other um, amazing thing, again, we've found out recently, is that, that, that those peaks of oxytocin after the birth form a natural warming mechanism for the baby. And it's a bit like we were saying before, you know, We've had millions of years without anything else to keep the baby warm because of this brilliant Mother Nature's superb design, as I call it. So the oxytocin peaks that the mother has cause um, opening of the blood vessels. We call it vasodilation of her chest wall. So there's a kind of flushing mechanism that happens from the chest up to the neck. And some women may have noticed this themselves, like with sexual arousal, which is another oxytocin um, situation. We can get this flush that goes up the neck, but the, the purpose of it is to keep keep the newborn baby warm. And it's not just a flush, it's actually a pulsing of heat. So the mother's body literally pulses heat to her baby to keep her baby warm as her baby's doing this, as she's holding her baby skin to skin, as the baby gets on the breast and eventually suckles. And this process can take up to 40 minutes, more than an hour for some babies, you know, and it's a kind of, it's a bit of a, you could say rest and be thankful period. I mean, the mother gets to recover, the baby gets to recover, and there usually is this kind of recovery time. And then the baby will look around, um, find the nipple by smell, by vision, and then start to crawl. And when the baby does this breast crawl and finds a nipple themselves, their their attachment to the breast is optimal. You know, no one needs to adjust anything, uh, which is actually a problem that lots of mothers have with breastfeeding when the baby kind of gets off to a bad start with not a good attachment to the breast. And I mean, literally mouth on nipple attachment, um, you know, and, and sometimes people have used this to kind of reprogram the baby, you know, the baby baby has these reflexes for, as I said, six weeks, some babies up to three months. So naked, you, you know, if you get naked with your baby in the bath, skin to skin, the baby can, um, has still has this ability to crawl up and find the breast and kind of repattern the, um, it's breastfeeding behaviors. And that can be really helpful for some, some women with breastfeeding difficulties. The body is mind-blowing, isn't it? It is just like amazing at how it knows how to do all of this. I just think it's such a miraculous experience and my mind is just blown. And for anyone who hasn't seen a breast crawl, we can put a link to a video in the show notes so you can actually see it because when I first saw it, I was just like my jaw was on the floor. It's amazing. Yeah, and I think the other aspect of it, you know, like the other reason we've kind of overlooked 
all these babies' abilities that we're talking about is because we took the babies away. And as one psychologist famously said, there's no such thing as a baby. There's only a baby and a mother. And when the baby's in the right environment, which is on the mother's body, the baby has all these amazing capacities that the baby doesn't have when we separate them. So, you know, there was a habit, you know, an ingrained, you could say, um, pattern, you know, of, of, of separating the baby. And I certainly got taught that, you know, when I went through my obstetric training, you take the baby away and you examine them, make sure there's no kind of problems with the baby and then you give it back. But, you know, there's, you know, um, I mentioned Nils Bergman, zero separation. It's really, it is mother nature's blueprint. And when I started attending home births as, as, a, as a doctor, I remember the first mother said to me, you're not taking my baby. <laughs> I thought, oh, that's right. I don't need to take the baby, you know. And, and again, for the mother, that's her instinct. You know, it's that mother tiger thing that comes up and that's a hormonal effect too. Like, you know, imagine trying to take a, a kitten or, a, a, you know, a baby mouse away. The mother would bite your hand off, right? So we have that instinct too, yeah. Oh, absolutely. What I keep hearing is the importance of trust, trusting our body, trusting the innate wisdom that is there. How important do you think trust is throughout this whole process? Oh, um, you're totally onto it. Um, that is, it's totally important. It's really important. And, you know, the other side of that, Melissa, is that we have a society that doesn't really trust these processes, that doesn't really trust women's bodies, that doesn't really trust nature. So that's a really important thing to do in your pregnancy is <laughs> increase your trust because there's all these kind of forces working against that. And, you know, a lot of pregnant women, if you're listening to this, I'm sure you've had this experience of people telling you lots of really negative stories where, you know, kind of the take-home message is you can't trust your body, you know. Um, so, like, filter out those as far as possible and surround yourself with people who can tell you stories about how it works, about the design, about their own experience. Watch videos. There's some great videos, you know. We talked, you mentioned orgasmic birth. That's my friend Deborah Pascali Bonaro made a whole video called Orgasmic Birth. So, you know, there's some great ones on YouTube as well, you know, like surround yourself with, with images and um, stories that increase your trust of your body and of your baby and you know you you actually need to protect your own mental well-being in pregnancy and this is something other cultures have known you know in, in traditional Hindu they say women should think beautiful thoughts in pregnancy women shouldn't be worried in pregnancy you know because your mental state in pregnancy is actually transmitted to your baby so the more calm and relaxed and trusting you know you can um you can cultivate for yourself you know it doesn't naturally happen you need to cultivate it for yourself the better that's going to be the more that's going to feed into trust going into labor and birth as well and I've got to say that that's something that people have really enjoyed out of my work so one of the kind of intentions of my work is a bit like to give all the science for why you should trust your body and, and the men love it too you know it's like a rational idea of why you should trust it so that can be really helpful too you know you want the kind of instinctive you know transmission of stories and images but if you want that kind of left brain scientific why you should trust then I'd really recommend ecstatic birth I'd recommend my book gentle birth gentle mothering and also I haven't mentioned but out of my interest in the hormones of labor and birth I wrote a very detailed report on this I think we're going to put the links down the bottom called hormonal physiology of childbearing so if you want all the science it's got more than 1100 references um, to know why I say this and why I say that um, go go to that report it's totally free as a PDF download. So again, you know, it's kind of, we, sometimes we've got to go through the, through the left brain to get back to the kind of right brain trust, but that's, that's a possibility I recommend. 
I love that. I'm curious to know, because you had four at-home births, did your trust grow with each one? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And, um, you know, what I did in, in, with all of them really was go to like home birth meetings or birth meetings and listen to other people tell stories. So, I kind of cultivated that trust, you could say, like I read good good books about it. Um, one of my favorites, it's still a classic actually, is the book Spiritual Midwifery. It's a bit of a hippie 60s text from a, a woman called Ina May Gaskin and, and a hippie community in the farm. She's still going. She's a brilliant midwife. But, you know, story, like I, I cultivated in myself as well and I switched off you know, filtered out a lot of negativity and I also concentrated on my body I mean it's a great time to go into your body because your body is really talks to you your body is such a place of you could say activity or you know it's like your consciousness kind of sinks down into, into your womb and pregnancy and if you can take some time to do that I really recommend that just you know if you've got 10 minutes put your put your feet up and really tune into your baby you know your baby's kind of I, I think of it like a, a radio station you know, your baby's on this particular wavelength. And if you relax down deeply enough, you can get onto your baby's wavelength. And that's a really blissful place to be. So, you know, there's practices you can do. I mean, nowadays, there's some beautiful hypnobirthing tapes that kind of help you to get down into that space. So, you know, um, being barefoot on the earth helps help me to be grounded and trusting. Being in nature, and again, in pregnancy, I was drawn to nature to look at, wow, the miracle of a spider spinning its web, the miracle of the leaves coming out. In spring, my body has that miracle as well. You know, I'm part of nature because, as I said, we're a bit divorced from nature and, you know, I think, you know, embedding ourselves in nature and helps us to kind of make those connections within as well. Now, you are an expert in ecstatic birth. Were all four of yours an ecstatic birth? Or or tell us about the four births and how they differentiated from each one. Well, every birth has its own own special qualities, you know, no matter how experienced you are, that every birth will be different. Um, so, yeah, and all my births were different. I had one early one, one late one, two that were exactly on time <laughs> um, and everything in between, really. And um, I was very fortunate to be at home and to have kind of the space and the trust and, and especially just going back to that trust idea, Melissa, you know, the other way to cultivate trust is to have caregivers that trust you. And I had um, my midwife, I had the, the same midwife with my first three babies who were born in Melbourne and we had such a relationship of trust, like we knew each other and she knew my body and what I wanted for my body and I knew that I could trust her. I knew that if she said to me, you need to go to hospital and have a cesarean, I knew that I could trust her, like I didn't have to second guess her. So that whole kind of figuring it out part of my brain <laughs> could kind of relax and I could kind of, you know, as Anna May Gaskin said, let my monkey do it. I could kind of sink down into, you know, in a in a neurobiological way, my limbic system, I could let go of the kind of thinking brain and just really let my limbic system and all those hormones take hold. So, that was really important with all of my births and being in that situation. Um, I think, you know, you do, <laughs> you do kind of get better in some ways at birth as you go. And, and one of these reasons is because all those hormonal systems get a thorough working out every time and you actually do when you're experienced you get more receptors in the brain that feedback oxytocin which is kind of why labor tends to go faster as you have more babies like my last labor was an hour and a half it was a bit of a shock um, wow. so yeah you do you do kind of get better and easier but 
you know, it's all it's all a mystery. You don't know what's coming up next. Like my third labor was actually my longest, and it was probably because I had more people there, and it happened in the daytime. Um, so you know, that private, safe, and unobserved. You know, nighttime. We most species or most day living species give birth at night, and most night living species give birth in the day because that's when our kind of alertness hormones are at their lowest level, and we need to switch off. As I said, the thinking mind, but the kind of adrenaline, those kind of processes, um, and nor adrenaline in the brain that makes the brain alert, they all have to have to decrease. And then um, the melatonin, the sleep hormone, also um, optimizes or helps all those birth hormones to work as well. So yeah, I think my third labor was longer because it was mostly in the day. And I also had more people around. I had my two children there. I had someone to look after them. I had my midwife. I had a doctor that came. <laughs> and my husband and myself. So it was, it was kind of a room full. And <laughs> as my sister-in-law said to me, you know, every extra person that you have there adds an hour. <laughs> So that's probably why it was 11 hours. With my first and my last, you know, for various reasons, there was very few people there. Like my first one went unexpectedly fast. And, you know, by the time the midwife arrived, I was pushing. And then the doctor arrived. I had a, um, a doctor coming and by he arrived as I was as she was being born. So that kind of, again, my own um, experience is a, is a great illustration of private, safe and unobserved. And, you know, my second was actually my most challenging. She was posterior and I had quite a difficult time in labor. I mean, I knew I could get through it, but I made a lot of noise. That's what really helped me. And I, I shut myself away in a room because I needed that level of privacy and safety. And, you know, it, it, that's a cultural thing as well. Like, you know, um, in some cultures, you don't feel safe if you're by yourself. So, you know, um, midwives and hospitals tell me that, you know, like Aboriginal women, Lebanese women, they'll often have a room full and that's what helps them to feel safe. And um, in Bali, I've got a friend who runs a birth center in Bali and she said that the, the women in Bali don't feel safe with the lights off because it's not that long ago that at nighttime a tiger could jump over their compound and steal their baby. So, nighttime is, is feels unsafe to them. So, they like to labor. Not I can't generalize. Obviously, it's very individual, but, you know, many women in Bali like to labor with the lights on because they feel safer. So, it's whatever's going to feel safe to you and reduce your kind of anxiety hormones, your adrenaline, so that all those other hormones can flow and, you know, you have this private, safe and unobserved atmosphere. And so, should we get really clear on what makes us feel safe before we actually go into labor so that we can go, okay, well, I know that, you know, could you flick the lights off to my husband or, you know, can you make sure no one's in the room? Because for me, that makes me feel more safe. So should we kind of tune in before we even go into labor so that we know really what makes us feel the most safe and then, you know, pop that on our birth plan or tell our midwife or our doula or our husband? I think that's a great idea, Melissa, you know, um, and as I said, <laughs> the hormones of having a baby are the same as the hormones of making a baby, so that's a good place to start. <laughs> what are the situations in which I could make a baby? <laughs> you can put those on your list. I think I think the key for me, birth is all about flexibility. Like you don't know, no matter how many babies you've had, you don't know how this birth's going to be because, you know, it's your body, it's your baby, and I think the babies bring their own qualities as well. You know, my first baby was a bit early and, you know, and 
and um, my label was fast and she's so she's 27 now she's so full of enthusiasm and so re- you know rearing to go at life you know and that was kind of her nature and my long birth that I talked about my son he's kind of like oh yeah maybe you know he's kind of laid back and then I said that like that in labor will I won't I you know let's just let's just hang out here for a bit <laughs> so you know um it's interesting but yeah so so being flexible is really important and I kind of learned this with that first birth because we had a birth plan meeting where I got all the people that were that were going to come and that was actually a room full I had two midwives a doctor myself my husband my sister was coming from New Zealand I had three other support people that's like 10 11 Whoa. people um and and I said at that at that meeting I said I might not call you and that was the best thing I said because that gave me that flexibility you know and it's a good thing to say you know you you have to be able to decide what you want to do according to what works for you in labor and you might not know what it is you can have a good guess and everything you're saying is really helpful you know there's sort of things that help you to feel private and safe but you know it might be at the at that, at that moment you actually don't want your husband in there you know you, you need to set it up so you can do whatever feels safe for you and no matter how like socially <laughs> difficult it is so the more you set it up to be flexible the less socially difficult it could be you know you'll, you'll make it because you know we want sometimes we want our mothers and our sisters and we want people to be there with us you know as an idea but when it actually comes down to it do we actually want them in the room like how is their energy with us are we feeling like we have to look after them or perform like can we be totally naturally and uninhibited in that space because that's kind of what it takes right it's like orgasm it's like how can we totally surrender to this energy and tune into our babies and tune into our bodies and not be distracted by anything around us Mm, makes so much sense. And if you think about it, like when how you make a baby is how you birth a baby, that sort of environment, it's like, well, would I really want 10 people in the room? Would I want, you know, it's, it's so interesting that you say that. And what I'm also hearing from you is like knowledge is power. And the more that we educate ourselves and expose ourselves to the vast majority of possibilities that are out there, the better, because we're going to feel more empowered. But then also when you're in the moment, it's just about flexibility and letting it all go and trusting your body and letting nature take its course. But do you agree that the more knowledge and the more we open our mind to the different possibilities, the better? Well, to some extent, Melissa, and I think, you know, it's, it's a bit, it's a bit tricky in our culture because we do tend, as women, we, we have, we, we operate in our lives quite often from our head and from a kind of left brained, you know, um, uh, learning kind of scenario. And a lot of us have jobs where we do that. But the, the key to birth is a bit like sex, really. You just got to let that go is to really go into your right brain and let that go. So it's a balance, really. Like we don't want to overactivate our left brain and the whole process so that we can't sink into our right brain when we really need to. But, but there's certainly knowledge and information that we need. And, you know, as I said, you're setting up yourself a situation. And unfortunately, there's a lot of decisions we have to make. And, you know, that and we do have to use this left brain to make those decisions. So that's, I think that's a tricky thing for women in our culture, you know, and other times and places, you know, you, what, what you did in labor and the care that you had was, of course, there's a woman in your town who attend, or village who attends birth. She's going to be the one you've known her since you were born. Of course, she's going to be there. Of course, the other women are going to support you. Of course, you know, you'll be um, as private and safe as you need to be. You know, of course, those things are going to happen. But now we have to deliberately make those choices, which means we do 
have to have that knowledge and we do have to kind of engage our brain and we do have to think ahead. So I, I agree with you. And I also, you know, the other great thing about pregnancy, as I mentioned, is that there's this kind of sinking down into your womb that happens, you know, that your body gets so kind of heavy and you could say bovine. <laughs> and it's actually, I loved it. It's a beautiful space to be in if you can kind of surrender to it, you know, like it's your body calls you deeply, your baby calls you deeply, and you can enter this kind of really slow, chilled kind of um state of being, you know, particularly the last few weeks of pregnancy. I loved it. You know, I was kind of just moving around in this kind of altered state. I just, you know, all the hormones were high and I was kind of high and, you know, it was all that kind of leading up to labor. So that was really beautiful. And again, you know, I was partly fortunate, you know, partly because I'd set up myself up this situation where I wasn't going to have to make all these decisions in those last few weeks. I kind of all had it all set up. Like I had my private safe space. I had my caregivers, you know, um, there weren't, uh, there wasn't a lot of worry for me at that time. So, you know, it's kind of a bit tricky, but you do, you know, I was talking to a, um, a friend the other, yesterday, you know, you do want to think ahead, like how can I set myself up a situation even from the very beginning where my worry is going to be decreased, where I'm going to be private, safe and unobserved in my labor. And, you know, I've got to say midwifery care is, is you know, number one on the list, continuity of midwifery care, having your own midwife who can, you know, walk you through that journey that you can get to know in your pregnancy, that will attend you in your labor, that will come and visit you afterwards, you know, and mostly, I mean, there's a few models um, all over the world, but mostly you're going to get that more by having your baby at home, you know, some hospitals do have it, but that's what you want to know. Will I see the same midwife or perhaps the same small group of midwives? Will I know the person that's there in my labor? Will I have had a chance to build up this trusting relationship with her. So, you know, I think that's the number one thing is model of care, who you, you know, the care that you choose is going to have the biggest impact on um, your experience of labor and birth via all of the things that we've talked about. Mm, absolutely. All of my friends that have had babies have said the exact same thing. That team, their, their support birth team has you know, really been the crux of the journey for them. It's it's about feeling held and supported and um, like you can just totally surrender to the moment. That's what lots of them have said. Beautiful, beautiful, yeah. Yeah, and the other thing, just going back to the hormones, um, I'm just going to say something um, about the way the hormones work in labor. I call it the snowball effect of labor. So what happens is, you know, you start off with a little bit of hormones, labor's kind of light and, you know, early labor, and then as it gets more and more into it, it's like the snowball gets bigger and bigger. And in the end, towards the end of labor, it's virtually unstoppable. And that's actually true hormonally as well. Like stress and early labor can stop labor. But by the time you get to the end of labor, this snowball's unstoppable, stress won't stop labor. So in other words, moving to hospital is, is a stress for the body. We're going into this space, where, which is by definition not our own space. You know, we, we're not going to feel private and safe and unobserved until we settle down there. So, you know, many women find moving to hospital and early labor, everything suddenly stops. You know, we're not private, safe and unobserved. Our, you know, our alertness hormones, adrenaline, noradrenaline kick in, labor slows down or stops. We kind of get settled in, you know, with our own midwife or doula ideally to help make the space our own. Um, we take things like our own pillow that we can bury our head into and eye masks that cut out the the, the light, you know, we can have familiar smells, etc. all those kind of things that help our primitive brain, you know, the limbic system to feel safe and then things can start up again. Um, but 
but the towards the end of labour for um, hormonal reasons, it actually has the opposite effect. So stress late in labour can actually make birth happen faster. That's called the fetus ejection reflex. So moving to, from home to hospital, if you're going to hospital later in labour, makes sense from a hormonal perspective. It's much less likely to throw your labour out. And, you know, usually you'll have your baby within, you know, half an hour, an hour of getting there. And again, having your own midwife or doula who can help you to make those decisions and go at the right time is um, is, is a really great asset there. Oh my gosh, my mind is blown. There are so many areas that you are an expert from instinctive pregnancy, ecstatic birthing, attachment parenting, co-sleeping, long-term breastfeeding, the lotus birth, raising babies without nappies, yoga in pregnancy and mothering and gentle parenting. And to be honest, each of those topics could be a whole entire podcast on their own. And maybe we'll have to get you back on to chat about some of those. But let's unpack just one of them that I'm really interested in, which is lotus birthing. Can you tell us about that and what it is? Yeah, so I did lotus birth with three my three old, um, younger children, and what it is is um, it's you could say it's um, extreme delayed cord clamping. So you know the usual process, and again, if we go back to animals, is that the the baby's born, there's a cord, and the placenta is still inside the mother's uterus, and then that gradually separates in the minutes after birth, and then a contraction of the mother's uterus births the baby's placenta, and then the mama animal will chew through the cord. She'll actually eat the placenta at the time usually whole and raw and then she'll lick her baby and then that's all over and of course in the wild eating the placenta is really important because you don't want to like a a, a tasty organ <laughs> floating around to attract predators so that's kind of that, that's a kind of blueprint you could say I'm not suggesting we should eat our placenta's raw <laughs> baby's placenta's raw but you know not not doing anything to the cord until the placenta comes out yeah so we're kind of rediscovering that there was there's, we've been through this trend of early cord clamping and there's a whole lot I could say about that but let's just say it's coming to an end we just we realized it's not good for the baby if we get that far away from mother nature's superb design how did that trend start? Oh yes, it's a long story. It seems like it seems like it probably well a few things, Melissa. But it seems like it probably happened when birth when women started going into bed to give birth because you know previous to that birth was women's business and we'd wander around and we'd probably squat and stand and who knows what position we'd give birth in. And then sometime in the 16th, 17th century, we started to be confined to bed, and apparently the cord clamp was invented to 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 um to ligate the cord to to spare the bed linen so that the bed didn't get drops oh of blood my on it. Gosh. <laughs> and then once you've invented what? the cord, <laughs> I know it's crazy. And then once you've invented the cord clamp, well then of course you can you can interrupt you know the the blood going through the the umbilical cord at any time that you like. And then in the seventies, you know, people developed this quite bizarre idea really that the baby would get too much blood if you didn't clamp the cord. And so they started clamping the cord early and this too much blood idea was around for like two or three decades before you know, people really looked at it scientifically and realized, oh, if we clamp the cord early, the baby actually doesn't get enough blood, doesn't get its full 
um, placental transfusion, as it's called. So, you know, we're talking about the placenta being inside the mother's uterus as the baby is being born, and then the mother's uterus is squeezing the placenta, and that's squeezing the blood from the placenta to the baby. So, it's kind of putting extra blood, the baby's own blood, putting more of the baby's own blood, about 100 mils into the baby in those minutes after birth. So, if the cords clamp straight away, the baby misses out on up to 100 mils of blood, and the baby's blood volume is only like 200 mils, so, you know, a third of its blood volume. So, really significant. But but fortunately, we're on a on a good path with that one, and we've started to realise that if we do that, it's not good for the baby. And the latest study shows that if the, this was a randomised study that randomised um, early uh, versus delay, and I think in this study the delay was only thirty seconds. And those in following those children up, and at age four, the boys with delay with early cord clamping had lower um, developmental scores, and the the boys with later clamping because they had less blood, less iron, which helps brain development. So yeah, there's a lot of things that we, we weren't doing right for quite a number of years there. So yeah, so the, the you know, um, as a background, you know, we're really moving towards delayed cord clamping and in inverted commas. I mean, the real physiology is to not do anything to the cord till the baby comes out. And then if you want to clamp and cut it, yes. But but do we even need to clamp and cut the cord? That's the question. So Lotus Birth asks that question. And it actually means not clamping or cutting the cord at all. So the baby and the cord are still connected to the placenta. And then, you know, you can um, nurse your baby if you need to. You can wrap the placenta up. You can do it. You can um, have the baby on the bed with the placenta and the cord. But I think that one of the big advantages of lotus birth is you can't take your baby to the supermarket <laughs> and the placenta is attached. So it really does slow the family down in those early days. And, you know, it has, you know, it has the, the whole family in this kind of slow kind of newborn state because, you know, the baby's brain at birth is not the, the, the it's like an electrical system. You know, the brain runs on electricity that hasn't got the, 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 the covering over it. The baby's brain is not myelinated. So the, the transmissions through the baby's nerves are very slow. You know, the newborn baby, you know, really up until age, well, gradually myelinated in the early years, you know, the, the baby's brain processes are very slow. So the ideal is for everyone to slow down, to be at this pace of the baby. And it's not, it's not that difficult to do when you're with a baby. You probably notice that yourself. You kind of slow down and you get kind of chilled out by the hormones of holding the baby and you kind of, you know, get into this beautiful, slow, relaxed newborn state. But, um, you know, lotus birth is a really great way of kind of anchoring that and slowing everyone down and making sure that you don't take the baby out. I, I think, I think you know, my ideal is like six weeks at home with the baby as traditional cultures do, 40 days of rest and relaxation and recuperation from birth and being looked after. I mean, ideally, you know, these cultures massaged every day, you know, no household responsibilities for those 40 days. And, you know, cultures did that because it worked, because it was actually, you know, a good investment of time. If you looked after the mothers at that stage, then the mothers would look after their babies and everything's going to go much more smoothly afterwards. So, you know, I think we've kind of forgotten that. We think, you know, particularly if birth goes well, we should be superwoman jumping up and, you know, doing the laundry the next day. That is, you know, that is really 
um, a misuse of our energy, I think. You know, I, I say stay in your pyjamas as long as you can. <laughs> Sounds good to me. 40 days of massaging. I'd love that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, you know, you can set those things up and it doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to have a masseur come. You can have friends come. My friend came and gave me beautiful foot massages. And, you know, if you're part of a community, you can ask instead of a, a baby moon, sorry, instead of a baby shower, you can ask people to bring meals to put in your deep freeze. You know, we had a, the last time, my last baby, we had um, a friend do a roster so that for a week, members of our community bought a, bought a cooked meal for us at night. You know, the whole family was kind of looked after and I was very fortunate. I had just coincidentally or by blessing, I would say, I had a friend who was uh, previously had babysat the kids and she stayed with us for a month and she cooked all the meals. She did my kids' birthday party. She did the driving and I didn't get in the car for six weeks. It was, it was just magical. It was so beautiful. And I'm not saying everybody should do that, but, you know, make yourself as much space as possible. People want to help with the baby, you know. Um, but you, again, it's like birth. You're the gatekeeper, you know. The other thing I did at that time was I didn't, I, I stayed in my pajamas. I didn't leave the bedroom for about a week. <laughs> my son said, are you ever going to leave the bedroom, mummy? <laughs> and my husband had to be the gatekeeper because, you know, the neighbours wanted to rush over with cooking, which was beautiful, but I actually wasn't ready. Like, I wanted to be in that cocoon with my baby. So, again, set yourself up, up a situation that's flexible. You know, say to people, you know, um, yeah, you can you can come on Tuesday afternoon, but I might ring you up and say, don't come. You know, because it is this really, you know, unique, special, like, um, magical, like, spiritual time of the baby coming and you're just and you could you could say that's true hormonally, you could say that's true spiritually, you could say that's true practically, whatever level you're talking about. You know, it's this huge time of adjustment. You're kind of in this liminal kind of in-between world state, you know, and you really want to honor that and not, you know, not go off being superwoman, you know. You really want to, my, my sister-in-law calls it the golden orb of the baby moon. You know, it's like this delicate shell that surrounds you and you don't want to make holes in it, you know. You really want to respect that time. And personally, I found that the more I invest in that time, the better my whole first year was, you know, and and and, and I'm not, I don't think I'm alone in that. Like that's why these cultures do it because you know it's a big use of energy in a culture, you know, that probably doesn't have a lot of spare energy. But obviously, people have figured out that this is what works in the long term. This is what makes mothers and babies have energy and makes make milk and survive, basically. Mm. And do you know what I'm hearing? It's okay to ask for support. I think a lot of us wear this superwoman badge, like a badge of honor. But, you know, in, in that time, we're very divorced from that tribal community feel that we had many, many years ago. So it's okay to ask for support. That's what I'm hearing. It's okay to, you know, ask for help from your family or your friends. I had one friend who one of her, uh, one of our other friends, she did up a full roster for about a month. So we were all on the roster and each, each day, uh, someone would drop off a new meal for them to eat. And I didn't see the baby for, for months. And that's because she was just intuitively doing what felt right for her. So it's okay to ask for support. Yeah, and wasn't that a beautiful experience for you too, Melissa, and for everyone to contribute? Yeah, that's right. And the other interesting thing, just going back to the hormones, I'm a little bit obsessed by the hormones, is oxytocin, you know, that hormone we're talking about that's in the mother's brain and uterus and released with breastfeeding. It's a social affiliative hormone. You know, it makes us want to seek others out. 
you know, so mothering is designed to be like a social activity. It's designed to have support from others, you know. It's it's it, it's how it's worked for millions of years. And, and, you know, exactly as we were talking about, you know, is we're a little bit divorced from our tribes and our communities. So having a baby and getting, you know, even pregnancy, we get more oxytocin. It's a great time to really figure out and constellate your tribe because, you know, you're going to need it, not just in the birth, not just in the early weeks, but, you know, you're going to need it ongoingly. You know, it takes a village, as we say. So, you know, the more you can really activate that and, and, and kind of, as you say, you know, make it okay for yourself, like know that you're actually contributing to others. You know, others are, people love to help with babies, right? Yeah. Mm, it does. It brings me a lot of joy. And and even just being part of that roster brought me a lot of joy. So, you know, don't be afraid to ask for help. So I'd love to hear what is one thing that's currently bringing you a lot of joy right now? Well, what I'm really enjoying actually is um, I'm enrolled in a PhD program. So I've got the opportunity to work with this amazing woman, Kirsten Uvenas Moberg, and she's like a world expert in the area of oxytocin and childbirth and mothering and breastfeeding. So it's bringing me a lot of joy to be able to do this work with her. And yeah, it's, I'm actually working through her with a European group who are doing some work on oxytocin. So yeah, really, it's a lot of um, a lot of fun, actually. <laughs> It's a lot of fun and very satisfying to, you know, kind of bring together my passion for birth and, you know, to produce something that I think is going to make a difference because, you know, a lot of the things we're talking about are not sort of centre in the in the medical view on birth, you know, to really get some of these things like, you know, the hormonal gaps we're talking about, particularly how can we um, look at those, how can we understand more about those, how can we fill them in and then how can we let, you know, um, the medical profession, maternity care providers know about this. So, yeah, I'm really enjoying that. And what's one thing that you're currently working on within yourself at the moment? Male female balance. I think it's um it's a theme in our world at the moment. But you know, where am I in my <clears throat> masculine? Where am I pushing myself? Where I don't actually need to push myself? And where am I? Where can I just like surrender and be and kind of let things happen around me? Which is a bit like what we're talking about in birth, really. You know, where can I accept help? Where can I um, surrender? Where can I, you know, not be in the driver's seat if you like? You know, because life is magic. You know, magic happens when we kind of when we sometimes more magic happens when we kind of drop that idea that we've got to be in control and in charge and yeah it's pretty fun in my life to do that I love the topic of the masculine and feminine not only within ourselves but within our relationships and in my next book it's called open wide the radically real guide to deep love rocking relationships and soulful sex I talk oh. a lot about, you'll love it because I talk a lot about understanding the masculine and feminine roles within ourselves and within our relationships. So I will definitely send you an advanced copy. Beautiful. I'd love to read that. I, I think it's, you know, we're talking about in terms of birth and parenting, but you know, it's so, so um up for healing in our culture. I mean, the reason we're having all these problems with the climate change is because we haven't respected the feminine. We haven't respected nature and the gifts that she gives us. We've kind of overridden that with our ideas. And, you know, we've got it. It's, it's, a, it's an emergency. We've got to get back to male-female balance. And, you know, I believe that when we all do that individually, we're contributing to the whole. And obviously, we want to work in the, in the whole as well. But, you know, what we do inside ourselves, the attitudes that we have are really critical to the collective. So, thank you for that work. That's really, really beautiful. I totally agree. Now, 
let's pretend that you have a magic wand and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every single high school around the world. Now, besides your book and my book, what what other book, just one, what book would you choose to go into the high school curriculum? Hmm, that's a really good question. I'm actually a really big fan of fairy tales and fantasy, and I think there's a lot that we could learn in our kind of instinctive being around fairy tales. Um, and one of my favourite fairy tale books is actually, oh, actually, yeah, that's what it is. It would actually be Baba Yaga. <laughs> I don't know if you know the story of Baba Yaga. I we used to read it and play it. Oh, yeah, it's a great. These are these are Eastern European fairy tales, and they're actually quite terrifying. But I think it's a good kind of terror. Like it's an awesome kind of terror. So Baba Yaga is this kind of. Um, uh, awesome aspect, like the you could say the the Kali aspect of the feminine living in the forest, and then there's the young kind of innocent Vasilisa who goes into the forest to to claim the light from Baba Yaga, and there's all these things she's got to go through. And yeah, it's a it's a beautiful story. It's a very feminine story, or it's about the feminine, really. It's one of those stories in Women Who Run with the Wolves. That's a beautiful version of it. So yeah, fairy stories, Baba Yaga. Um, I mean, uh, you know, there's some other beautiful Roman myths as well. Um, they, they kind of speak to that deep side of ourselves, I think. And, you know, I think we... N- not we need, but you know, like it's it's a beautiful balancing in our culture when we can get out of that kind of factual head and sink into those kind of archetypal myths of 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 of, of humanity. Yeah, mm, beautiful. I can't wait to check them out. That sounds amazing. Now let's talk about how your day looks. Do you have a morning routine? I'm obsessed with hearing about how people prime themselves for the day. So, you know, if you have a morning routine, what does that look like for you? And I know every day is not going to be the same, but are there a couple of things that you make sure you do each and every day to set you up for success? Well, I'm in an interesting time at the moment because, um, as I said, my oldest daughter's 27 and my youngest is 17 and she's at the end of year 12. So, my morning routine has been very much about school and children and getting up to, you know, get them ready for school and that kind of thing. And, and that's about to come to an end. So, the way I answer the question today is probably going to be different like come December. <laughs> but I do like to get up at a reasonable time, like seven o'clock, I get up for, you know, to do the kind of school thing. But yeah, I think getting up and, and enjoying the morning is really good. Um, I like to have a stretch in the morning. I like to have a hug with my husband in the morning. That sets me up for the day, ideally skin to skin. Hell <laughs> um, yeah, that's what hormones, I'm talking those about. Those juicy hormones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I guess some of my healthy habits, like I always have a good night's sleep. So, I always have, you know, good eight to nine hours because that's what my body needs. So, I always get up at a good time and, um, you know, and I always have breakfast. Well, as you know, that I always, I always have breakfast at some stage, sometimes early, sometimes a bit later, but yeah, that's kind of my morning routine. And actually the thing I really like, and this is something again that I've been doing as a kind of transition into my more feminine nature. Like I really like waking up at like 6.30 in the morning and actually just lying in bed. Like I've had times when I've got up and done yoga and meditated and those are great things. But for me, they've actually become, they're a bit of a to-do, like I should get up and do it. And lying in bed and breathing and looking because we've got beautiful windows and looking at the bush and nature around me is really nourishing. So I actually really enjoy that time. Mm, sounds beautiful. And what are three things you're most recently grateful for in your life? Oh, <laughs> I'm grateful for everything. Um, I'm grateful for right now in Queensland, I'm really grateful for the beautiful rain that we're getting. You know, we, we've gone through this stage of quite 
significant drought and dryness. And, you know, when the land is in that situation, there's a kind of inner stress that, that you have, you know, like it's, it's even hard to enjoy the, the fine weather because, you know, you know that it's hurting the plants and the animals. So I'm really grateful that the rains have started and we, I just love the, I love the light rain. I love the warm rain coming from New Zealand. Rain was always cold and a bit miserable, but the warm rain and the storms, I love all of that. I love that aspect of Queensland and the lushness and the green and the green grass under my feet and the banana trees going green. Like I love that. I'm very grateful for that, for the gifts of nature. So that's beautiful. Um, second thing is usually, it's almost always my beautiful husband. We've been married for 32 years and it gets better and better. And yeah, it's, we're at the stage of like having more space between us and having more opportunities to spend time together. And it's very rich and nourishing and um, you know, it's not a walk in the park relationships, as everyone knows. You know, I say marriage is a, this is a quote actually, marriage is an edifice that must be renewed every day. You know, you can't take it for granted. You need to put in in order to get out. But, you know, I'm always learning about how to, you know, be in more balance in my relationship, how to get the best out of my man, out of the masculine, how to get the best out of myself as a woman. So, yeah, lots and lots to learn there. Um, but very grateful for that opportunities. And, um, yeah, I'm very grateful that for my family, for my children that are all happy, healthy, well-adjusted <laughs> out there in the world, adults, you know, like, um, you know, there's no guarantees, obviously, at any stage. But what I think is that the more you put in when they're little, you know, the more you get out when they're older because all of these hormones feed into the attachment systems. And if your children have got good attachment systems, it's a really good investment. You know, nothing's an insurance policy. I mean, you know, things happen, but and when their attachment systems are, you know, anchored in the brain from those early days and weeks and years, um, you know, it's a great foundation. You know, they're good. You get good people skills and that makes you more employable. <laughs> you know, you get more confidence in yourself. And, you know, my kids are doing really interesting things in the world. You know, one of my children is an environmental activist and one of them is a political activist and does radio shows and one of them's <laughs> running for student politics, you know. So, yeah, just really grateful for the opportunities I've had with my children, for the births I had, because really that's one of the reasons I, you know, I, I, I talk about birth is, you know, birth is such a good way, good entrance into that kind of style of parenting when there's lots of ways of coming into it. But when you get that shift in your brain that happens with all the things we've talked about, then that kind of attachment style of parenting that, that nourishes the children's brain development comes naturally and comes with a lot of pleasure. Yeah. So, I'm very, very grateful to have had all of those experiences that have led me to, you know, enjoying um, parenting my children and, you know, that my children have ended up being happy and healthy, um, which is partly good luck and partly good management. Yeah. Mm, beautiful. I've now got three little rapid fire questions for you. In your opinion, what is one of the most important things that we can do today for our health? Uh, number one has to be rest. <laughs> that's what's up to, that's what's up on top at the moment. And I don't just mean getting good sleep, but you know, having a, like a restful attitude to life, like putting that, having times in your day where you kind of put the, um, the franticness, you know, which is, which is like intrinsic in our culture and kind of getting worse on lots of levels, like time speeding up and we're all having to go fast to, to catch up with it. So having restful interludes where we can actually put our feet on the ground or just take a couple of breaths or, you know, my current kind of med- 
meditative practices that I lie down for 15 minutes a day or most days and I don't do anything. <laughs> it's quite difficult. Like, what do I do if I don't do anything? Like, I've got to look at the clock as 15 minutes up. <laughs> um, but it's quite a discipline to not do anything, to actually just rest, you know, without going to sleep or whatever. So, yeah, rest. Rest is at the top of my list. I love that. It's something that I'm really trying to incorporate um, in my life as well, mastering the art of doing nothing. That's one of my tasks. Perfect. Yeah, perfect. (laughs) So, next one is, what is one of the most important things that we can do for more wealth in our life? So, more abundance in all areas of our life. Well, I think it comes back to some of the things we were talking about before, about following your instinct and following your calling. And, you know, knowing what's there for you to do. And, and, and if you don't know what it is, follow your passion, you know, because you don't want to end up, you know, in, in an area or in a job that, that doesn't fuel your passion, that doesn't fuel your life. You know, we want to have a juicy, passionate life by doing what's there for us to do. And I really believe that we all have gifts and, and, and gifts to share with the collective. So, you know, being authentic in what you do in your life it will create abundance on every level. Mm, beautiful. And what is one of the most important things that we can do for more love in our life? Um, well, the thing, I think one of the things is um, heart-to-heart communication, like being more authentic and heartful in how we connect with each other. And it might be verbal, it might not be verbal, you know, but really connecting with people. And I think that, you know, again, in our culture, we've kind of got so fast, we, it's easy to be disconnected. So like taking the time to, you know, ring your friends or even text your friends to stay in touch with your friends, to know what's going on, to give them support, to get support, you know, um, call up someone and have a conversation, you know, um, hug your partner, hug your children, hug your friends, you know, that kind of just um, nurturing connectedness. Mm, hugging releases that oxytocin, doesn't it? Yeah, it's the cuddle hormone. <laughs> yeah, apparently you need eleven hugs a day. So, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I'm going to go and get my get my quota after this. That's for sure. That's good. That's good. Yeah, that's the ideal. That was actually, I think, Virginia Satir, who is a family therapist, and that's what she she came the, the conclusion she came to that we should. I think there's something like she had like so many for maintenance, but eleven is the ideal. That's what will that's what will fuel you. Yeah, awesome. And finally, I would love to know what can I personally and the listeners do to serve you today. Yeah, well, what I'd love people to do is to get this information and share it, you know, like whether you're pregnant or whether you're ever going to be pregnant, you know, talk about it with people and share it. So, I'm going to recommend people go to my website, um, I mentioned before, sarahbuckley.com and go to subscribe and download my eBooks. I've got an eBook called The One Ecstatic Birth, Nature's Hormonal Blueprint for Labor. So, that's got all the kind of science information I'm talking about. There's another one. So, if you do that, you go into my professional list. But there's also a more simple version of it called Pain and Labor. Your hormones are your helpers, and that's just a really simple read. So, you know, download those, whatever you want to, um, whichever degree of detail you want, and 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 think about it, and talk about it, and share it, and you know, really um, honor honor the process of bringing new life into the world, whether it's for yourself, whether it's for the collective. Mm, we will definitely put a link to that in the show notes, so everyone can go and get those eBooks. That's just such great information, and we'll also put a link to your beautiful book, which I can't wait to read. 
But before we go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for all of this beautiful, amazing wisdom and knowledge. My mind has been blown and I know everyone listening will just have the same reaction. So I want to acknowledge you for the work that you're doing. I'm so grateful there's pioneers out there blazing the trail like yourself. It's just so important. And I'm just deeply grateful that you created the space to come and chat to us today. So thank you so much, Sarah. And I hope to see you next time I'm in Brisbane. Yeah, that'd be beautiful. Let's do that. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, yeah, thank you for the thank you very much for the opportunity and yeah, lots of lots of love and blessings to everyone um, listening as well. Yep, my mind is totally blown. I got so much out of today's episode. And if you did too, please subscribe and leave me a five-star review in iTunes because that means we can inspire even more people together. And don't forget to tell me on social media, either on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, who you would like me to have on the show. And for everything that Sarah and I mention in today's podcast, you can check out in the show notes, and that is at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 45. And you can also check out all my other podcast episodes there too. And I have some very exciting news. You can pre-order my book, Open Wide, right now. And tickets for the Open Wide Tour, which I'll be doing with my husband in January and February of 2018. Tickets for that are now available. And all you have to do is head to nickandmelissa.com to get your tickets now. We cannot wait to meet you. It's going to be so fun. So thank you, my darlings, for being here, for wanting to be the best version of yourself and for showing up today for you. You seriously rock. Now, if there is someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, I know loads. So please share it with them because you are going to inspire them so much. And until next time, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy is isn't a dirty word.